Lord, thank you for your life-giving word. Thank you that when all else fails, your word just cuts to the quick and it is beautiful and it restores and it builds us up and it always points, Lord Jesus, to you. We come under your word again afresh this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You are beloved. That is how Paul starts this passage. Therefore, dearly beloved. Not the anemic NIV translation, dear friends, but the Greek agapetoi, sorry, which is uncompromising. God's beloved. Paul's beloved. We are dearly loved. And in the preceding hymn of praise, God has described how Jesus comes in human flesh for you and was obedient to death on a cross for you. This is the sign that you are beloved. While I was meditating on this, I was reminded this week of a dream that a Baptist preacher, A.J. Gordon, had in the mid-19th century. And this is the dream. He was standing in his church and he was preaching. And in front of him, there was a congregation. When a stranger entered the church and started walking down the aisle, and this stranger had a sorrowful air about him, but Gordon the preacher was wrapped in attention by him. And the stranger walked and walked and was looking for a place and looking for somebody who would invite him to sit next to them, which eventually an elderly man did. And as Gordon continued to preach, this strange man with a look of sorrow about him listened to Gordon with reverent attention. And at the end of the service, Gordon was so taken with this figure that he wanted to meet him and he, he rushed down after the blessing, but already there was a crowd and people were leaving and suddenly the stranger had gone. And Gordon went up to the elderly man who had been the stranger's neighbour and he said, who was that man? And the elderly man replied, why do you not know that man? It was Jesus of Nazareth. And Gordon said, I missed him. I wanted to meet him. I've always wanted to meet him. And the elderly man replied, he has been here today and no doubt he will come again. And Gordon was immediately enveloped by preoccupation. Had he preached of Christ crucified that day? Had he preached in a crucified way, even if he had? Or had he preached promoting himself? And what did the stranger think of the church? What did he think of their worship? What did he think of the costly organ? And Gordon writes this, It did not seem at that moment as though I could ever again care of having the smallest curiosity as to what men might say of preaching, worship or church if I could only know that he had not been displeased that he would not withhold his feet from coming again because he had been grieved at what he might have seen or heard. 
Gordon feels convicted. And he goes back to the elderly man one last time. And again, the neighbour replies reassuringly, he has been here today and no doubt he will come here again. Well, Jesus will come again. Paul is writing to the Philippians in the light of the coming day of Christ, the return of the King. But Jesus may come again at any time, browsing among the lilies, wanting to be with his beloved. Maybe Jesus is right with you in your home today as you engage in this service. Maybe he's looking at you with this look of intent, attention. Can you let yourself entertain this awareness? Do you, like Gordon, feel concerned that Jesus may not be grieved by what he sees or hears? Well, as I said, this passage that we've come to today, it sits in the shadow of the glorious portrait of Jesus Christ which Christopher preached on really memorably last week. And that masterpiece painting of Jesus coming down and taking human form, you'll well remember, coming as a servant, being obedient to death, even death on a cross, then being raised by God to the highest place, exalted by him, and being given the name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Paul continues, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, how should you and I live? This is the gospel's irresistible invitation to holiness, for us to follow Jesus to become more like him, to lead a cross-shaped life, pouring out our lives for others, just as Paul was doing for the Philippians. What gets in the way of this? What gets in the way? Why is it that some of us are experiencing transformation at the moment, rapid spiritual growth, and some of us are experiencing small, steady, incremental change And some of us are stagnating and we've plateaued, almost perhaps become indifferent. When I was a theatre director for two decades, I used to watch productions, often productions that I directed, night by night. And watching and noticing how the actors performing on stage subtly changed their performance as a result of who they knew was watching that night perhaps a partner, perhaps an agent, perhaps a rival actor, perhaps a VIP who they revered. And of course, it was only a very particular type of actor, a great actor, who would be free of all of that and would give the same performance regardless. Well, Shakespeare says all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players And the truth is, we can often play to different audiences. The audience of self, the audience of the world, the audience of other people, the audience of God. 
And these audiences often overlap in their effects on us. We may be worshipping in church, but actually aware at the same time of how we're looking perhaps to other people. Or our behaviour is changed in a certain context by somebody being present who we either admire hugely or perhaps are fearful of. But Paul is urging the Philippians to have a single focus amongst these many possible audiences, and that is their loving father. For Paul, there is only to be one audience, and that is the audience of one, the audience of God. Therefore, therefore, since you are united with Christ, how then shall you live? And Paul says we're to live out our life, working out our faith in fear and trembling. Our passage then goes on with, as you have always obeyed, so obey now. Recalling Jesus becoming obedient to death by going to death on a cross. But we balk at obedience, don't we? It sounds restrictive. It sounds like it's going to limit our freedom. We like to march to a different drummer. Our culture extols self-expression. As if obedience might not bring the joy that Paul speaks of here. Well, let's examine these other audiences that are in this passage that we might play to and why Paul warns us of them. Why he says that the only one, the only true audience in the Christian life is the audience of one. That it's only that audience which will not only bring glory to God, but bring us into abundance of life. Now, loaded like depth charges within this passage are two Old Testament scriptures, which are very, very important. And they speak to our destiny as believers. At the end of his book, the book of Daniel, in Daniel 12, Daniel, who is also looking to the day of Christ, speaking of the end times, says of the resurrected on that day, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And Paul is then going to pick up this imagery in our passage when he speaks to the Philippians as leading pure and holy lives and says to them that they must shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Not just, you notice now, on the day of resurrection, but here in this life, right now. Not dark stars, just bright stars. And this isn't to be a star like the kind of prima donna actor that I sometimes worked with. I remember once rehearsing in an opera singer who had arrived at the last minute because of somebody else becoming ill, uh, just before our opening night. And I rehearsed in this opera singer, a bit of a star from another country, into all kinds of subtle positions on stage in different scenes. And he was very adaptable. And then came the first night, the press night, and whenever he began to sing, instantly he moved to centre stage, downstage by the footlights, and hogged the limelight there. No, we're not to be hogging the centre stage like that. Paul is urging us to be 
a star filled with the light of Christ, with the light of our morning star. To shine in this way is your birthright and your destiny, holding on to the word of life and holding it out to others. Not elbowing your way to centre stage, but shining wherever God has placed you in context. The Irish evangelist Gypsy Smith once said, there are five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And some people will never read the first four. We're to be visible. We're not just to be above the waterline. We're to be out of the trench and dazzling in the heavens. Holiness made flesh. God made manifest. Jesus constellations, all of us. Whatever in your own thinking, wherever you are in your own life at the moment, whether you feel that you're leading a life of purpose or you're feeling insignificant, the word of God says you're made to shine. And this is what happens when we live in the audience of one. But two significant audiences can stand in the way of that, in your becoming a pure carrier of the light of Jesus. And the first one is the audience of the self. Paul is profoundly concerned about what happens when we play to the audience of the self. And he picks this up here in the warning, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. He's speaking about two particular women in the church who we'll hear about in a later chapter who were involved in a scrap together. He talks of them contending for the gospel, but actually they come over more as wrestling with each other for supremacy. And the word for grumbling that Paul uses is that used of the Israelites, grumbling and groaning against God in the wilderness. The word for arguing tends to be the word that is used for people arguing or disputing with one another. So to use two work metaphors, arguing with God is when you pull down the blinds of your office, walking away from him in bitterness or disappointment. And arguing with others, well, that comes from people keeping kind of mental filing cabinets on people, filled with arguments against them, self-justifications of our own behaviour, claims against others. And Paul says, stop doing all of this. The spirit of complaint, the spirit of being disputable, the spirit of grumbling can come on any of us. We set ourselves against God and we set ourselves against others instead of surrendering our will to God and seeking to reconcile with others. Are we more consumed with being right, proving the rightness of our position in relation to others, than seeking to reconcile with our brothers and sisters across our differences? Yes, we need to discern truth and we need to speak up for what we believe. Paul talks here of our holding firmly to the word of the gospel. But gospel stars are busy shining in all directions not caught up in disputes with their neighbours. Even where our truth differs from our neighbour, Paul pleads to us to have a heart of love for them and to argue our case gently and winsomely. How he'd grieve at the tribal rhetoric we've heard 
on the public stage in recent years. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Are you expending more energy at the moment maintaining an argument against somebody else than seeking to reconcile with them? Do you need to forgive anyone today and pursue fresh relationship with them? Beware of being played, of, of being pulled to play to the audience of the self. And then beware of the audience of the world and its idols. The second Old Testament passage referenced here comes in Paul's words, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Now Paul is writing here, if you'll remember, chained to a a Roman guard and he knows he may be taken out for execution at any point. And it's no wonder that his mind goes to the life of Moses, as Moses was preparing to die and in conversation with God. God speaks to Moses in Exodus 31 saying, you're going to rest with your fathers and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the lands they are entering. They'll forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And then Moses goes on to sing a song about the lives of the people that he's just led for the last 40 years. And he says this of them, they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Paul longs for the Philippians to be a redeemed people, but he sounds a warning note here. He refers back to a warped and crooked generation, a people who went after other gods, chasing Fool's gold. The evangelist D.L. Moody once said, character is what a man is in the dark. And in the dark, many men and women pursue money, sex and power. And we've heard a sense of that through our prayers earlier in the service. But there are much subtler idols we can also fall prey to ones we more readily accept because they're the collective ones of our culture. I'm talking about idols like comfort, retreat into our private space, things that get in the way of us giving ourselves away for the sake of others. Today is Racial Justice Sunday, as Emily prayed at the beginning. And white privilege is an idol for some. And when we're susceptible to this, we perpetuate this idol worship and we deny opportunities that would benefit more of our BAME brothers and sisters. Now, of course, our desire for something like comfort isn't necessarily wrong. But the thing is, we can have too great an attachment to it. We can elevate it into an idol and it can begin to get in the way of our relationship with God. It can take us captive This overattachment comes at the expense of union with our Father. And it also comes at the expense of the common good, the flourishing of others. As acting rector of St. Aldate's, I want to pursue excellence in these services that we bring you online. But does excellence ever become an idol? 
That's always a danger in the world of Oxford. As a leader and team, we have to constantly re-examine our hearts about this. What does Jesus see as he sits here with us today? And idols work on us subtly. Deep in our heart, we can know of things not right, but it doesn't feel wrong enough for us to want to change it. Or we say it's just the way of the world, what we all do. Or we fail to come out of its spell because the cost feels as if it would be too great. And it starts quietly. I always remember an older actor giving me some wise advice as I directed the opening scene of a play that ends in disaster for the main character. And this actor's advice was this. Great catastrophes begin quietly. Great catastrophes begin quietly. I'm sure it began quietly in the life of the man in relation to whom we were praying earlier. Great catastrophes begin quietly in the hidden places and in the idols that we covet in our hearts. And Paul says, don't be an idolatrous people. Beware of the audience of the world. And so we come finally to the one true audience before which we should live our lives, the audience of our Father. Be blameless and pure, says Paul. Back in the first chapter, he said, be pure and blameless. And if we think that sometimes he's perhaps being a little bit monotonous or peddling the same thing, it's because of the singularity of his focus. Things are actually remarkably simple when we live before the audience of one. And this is what Jesus did. The one who says, I only do what I see the Father doing. And did this obedience limit and stultify Jesus? No, it made him the most free and self-giving person that ever walked the earth. Paul writes, work out your faith with fear and trembling. That's the holy fear that we feel in the face of one that we love and revere and whom we long to please. It's what A.J. Gordon experienced in that dream, as his eyes locked with those of Jesus Christ. Work out your salvation. That doesn't mean work for your salvation. That would be to worship at another altar, the altar of good works. And we know from the gospel that it's never by those that we are saved. But don't believe either that grace means that you don't need to be active in the pursuit of holiness. Paul knows that God longs to pour his power into us by his spirit. God works in us to will and to act to fulfill his good purposes and we are to cooperate with him working out our salvation. And we surrender to him. Why? Because we know that we are beloved. With the audience of one, you're not playing to the audience of big brother but to the one who loves you, who cares utterly for you, who died on the cross for you. And this is what broke A.J. Gordon's heart as Jesus sat in the dream in front of him and as Gordon felt his own lack of holiness. 
So as I come into land and the band come back, we follow Jesus because he is the one who is beautiful and good and true. And he sees the beautiful and the good and the true in us and he calls it out. And if you're only engaging in this service today because you feel you ought to be, you're suffering from a hardening of the arteries. You need to come back to Jesus this morning, the audience of one. Accept the brokenness once more, your brokenness, and agree to look bad in the presence of love. Because it's as we do so that we become the bright star that God has made us to be. And how do stars come to shine brightly? Well, I discovered this week it's partly down to the mass of the star, but it's also when stars are closest to us that they shine brightest. And Paul's passionate plea for us to be blameless and pure is in in a crooked generation. And that little word in, that tiny word in the Greek, mison, it actually means right in the middle of. It's the only word that Paul added otherwise to that straight quotation from the Song of Moses. What Paul's saying is don't get lost in a picture of stars as somehow distant. No, the coming of Jesus has changed everything from Daniel's time. We're to shine as stars and we're to shine brightly through being holy people close to others, right in the middle of our communities. The darker the place that you live in or that you work in, the more you're needed in order to give light there. So this is how God designed you to be. This is the life he designed you for here and now and in the age to come. And who is the one that we worship? Why do you not know the man? It is Jesus of Nazareth. Let me pray, and then the band are going to lead us in response. Holy Spirit, thank you that you came to point us more precisely to Jesus. Thank you that, Holy Spirit, you are here with us in our homes and our different spaces now. Lord Jesus, would you train your eyes on ours and would we meet you in this moment? And would we sense again your irresistible call to holiness? We want to turn away from all other audiences. Help us to confess other audiences that we play to, to you, here and now.
Thank you, Lord, that in the Christian life, there is to be only one audience, the audience of one. We rejoice that we are beloved by you and we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.